Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand your consciousness, stimulate thought, enhance your physical and mental health, and encourage community. For the past 50 years, the United States has had the dubious distinction of being one of the world's foremost suppressors of research into certain medicines known as psychedelic medicines. This suppression has not only gone on in the United States, but the United States has suppressed research in other countries by telling the countries that if you go ahead with research in these areas, we will cut off our help, our financial assistance to you. Recently, there was, have been several breakthroughs, historic breakthroughs, which have allowed research to actually take place. Imagine that, allowing research to take place. Today's interview will be with psychiatric nurse Annie Mithoffer and her husband, psychiatrist Dr. Michael Mithoffer. Stay tuned. You're going to want to hear the interview with them about their historic, groundbreaking research into a medicine known as MDMA, known on the street to many of you as ecstasy. But first, news and notes in psychology and medicine. How much exercise can slow down the ravages of aging? Potentially a lot. What's new about that, folks? Don't we already know that, or do we? Nope, we've got to be reminded of it again and again. Exercise can partially, but not completely, but partially prevent arterial stiffening with age and completely prevent the dysfunction of the arterial lining that develops with age. Exercise, as it turns out, is probably as powerful as any other kind of prevention strategy or treatment that has been assessed so far. That's what the scientists are telling us. In fact, Dr. Mark Tarampolsky, professor of pediatrics and medicine at McMaster University in Ontario, Canada, has said, you're 100 times better training in your 40s and 50s than a sedentary person in your 20s. What are you going to do about this, folks? You got to do something. Talk to your friends, neighbors, family. Figure out some way to put together an exercise program because the muscles you save are going to be your own. Here's something for those of you who have a family member that is afflicted with schizophrenia. Schizophrenia. That, that word that brings terror into the hearts and emotions of so many of us. Schizophrenia. Scary. Psychotic. What does it mean? It means isolated, withdrawn, considered beyond help. But now, there's new news that these people can learn to become more active, sociable, employable, engaging by talk therapy. Yes, something many of us have known for years, but once again is being reviewed and seen as a treatable disorder, not with various kinds of medication which are being brought into question, but by talk therapy. University of Pennsylvania researchers just published an article in the Archives of General Psychiatry if you want to go and look at it. But the bottom line is 
schizophrenia, labeled by Freud the narcissistic neurosis and therefore incurable, is now being viewed once again as a curable illness. There is hope for those of you who have friends and or family suffering from schizophrenia. Now, let's look on. We're going to be talking today, as I said, with Annie and Michael Mithoffer about their research and MDMA leading into that. There's a new study coming out of Johns Hopkins University about psilocybin, known on the street as magic mushrooms. The report is that psilocybin, taken as a medicine in proper conditions, can make people more open in their feelings, in their aesthetic sensibilities, conferring on them a lasting personality change. Yes, says Dr. Roland Griffiths, the author, a study author and professor of psychiatry at Johns Hopkins, these mushrooms known on the street as shrooms leads to openness and personality change in a positive way, extroversion, less neuroticism, more agreeableness, less contentiousness. These changes lasted in this study over a year. Interesting that more and more research, as you're going to hear about today, is coming out showing the positive effects of what hitherto for were considered dangerous street drugs. But before the interview, a word from Petra Schulte, the nutrition educator and grant coordinator at the Fort Bragg Univers uh, Unified uh, School District in uh, Fort Bragg, California. She wants us to know about sweet potatoes. Sweet potatoes, an excellent source of beta carotene, which helps the body fight disease. Sweet potatoes are a good source of fiber, which helps lower blood cholesterol. And she tells us that the Center for Science and the Public Interest ranks the sweet potato as the number one most nutritious vegetable. Wow, did you know that cooked and mashed sweet potatoes can replace up to one quarter of the wheat flour in breads? I don't know, I don't know if I wanted one quarter of the wheat flour in my breads replaced, but it's an interesting little piece of data. But more importantly, sweet potatoes provide an excellent source of vitamin C, they give you 20% of your daily value of vitamin E, and they are even more nutritious when cooked with their skin. And now to our interview. Annie and Michael Midhoffer, I welcome you to Mind, Body, Body Health, and Politics. Are you with us? We're here, yes, Richard. Thank you very much for having us. We really appreciate having this chance to talk to you about our research. Hi, Michael. Hi, Richard. I'm here. Hi, Annie. Nice to hear your voice. Thank you for having us. Michael Midhoffer spent a decade of his early career as a board-certified emergency medical physician. He's also certified in internal medicine, and in 1991, he became certified in psychiatry. He and Annie have a private practice of psychiatry and clinical research in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. On November 2, 2001, Michael and Annie obtained FDA approval to run a clinical trial in the United States giving MDMA in combination with psychotherapy to treat chronic treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress disorder. The first experimental session of his uh, phase two clinical trial happened in uh, April of 2004. This, folks, is a historic, groundbreaking study after 
As I told you earlier in the beginning of the program, over 50 years of suppression of research. Give us some background, please, on, well, before we go into background on the study, tell our listening audience, what is MDMA? What does it stand for? What is it? And what does it do? Well, MDMA stands for 3,4-methylene-dioxy-methamphetamine, which um, is a molecule that looks something like methamphetamine and, and something like uh, mescaline, which kind of reflects its, um, in, a, in some way, its, its activity. It's um, a medicine that's taken by mouth, you know, by in a capsule form, powder form, and um, it has a, a kind of a wide range of effects on the brain and body. Um, to, what it boils down to largely is a lot of monoamine release, release of things like serotonin, uh, dopamine, norepinephrine, as well as a number of other effects like release of hormones like prolactin and oxytocin. Uh, so basically all that amounts to giving people an experience um, that's not quite psychedelic in the sense that, that people often mean it. It doesn't cause hallucinations, but it does cause a real shift in consciousness that often involves uh, greater insight, uh, greater empathy for self or others, and greater connection with emotions in an interesting way. It seems to actually sometimes allow people access to uh, difficult emotions that they've been cut off from, but without with a sense that they won't be overwhelmed by fear, and also access to positive emotions that they may have been cut off from. So it kind of seems to modulate the emotions in a way that creates a state that's really useful, potentially. That's what we, that's our hypothesis and our research, really useful to people to help process uh, emotions. Annie, how did you and Michael get interested in this particular medicine, MDMA? Well, we experienced uh, MDMA with a therapist when it was legal and uh, did some couples work and found it to be incredibly useful. And uh, we did breath work uh, training together and learned how you can use techniques to help people process things like trauma. And so that sort of started our curiosity about it. So you had a personal experience while MDMA was still a legal medicine in this country, and you were, you were so impressed with the value that you got from the medicine that that sparked your scientific interest? Is that what you're saying? It did spark our scientific interest, and also we have worked with many people that have had trauma or uh, difficult times in their lives that we're, we were constantly looking for something new to help people because there are a lot of people that have not been helped by traditional therapies. So that was another part of uh, the, the decision to look at that, at this. 
And when, Michael, when did uh, MDMA move from being a legal medicine, which you and Annie took with your therapist, when did it move from that to being categorized by our government as an illegal medicine, or then it got turned into what's called a drug instead of a medicine? When did that right. happen? That was in 1985, when the DEA uh, put MDMA in Schedule 1, uh, actually contrary to the recommendations of their of the administrative judge who uh, ran the hearings about MDMA recommended that it should be a prescription medicine, but the, F the DEA at that time uh, overruled that and didn't follow that recommendation and put it in Schedule 1. It had been, uh, it was first patented in 1914 by Merck Pharmaceuticals, but they never used it for anything, um, never administered it to humans, and then in the 70s is when it started to come into use by some therapists as an adjunct to therapy. So, you know, this is not a new idea. Uh, others had that idea at that time, and a number of therapists, psychiatrists, and psychologists in the United States and Europe were using it in the 70s and early 80s, but then in 85, um, that was all, you know, all legal use came to an end. So, Annie and Michael, you both first experienced this medicine when you were patients in, in, a, in a, a therapist's office while the medicine was legal, and you had a positive effect. I, I'll share with you that in 1983, I was administered uh, MDMA in my therapist's office, and I had it uh, over a series of sessions and found that it was uh, profoundly uh, helpful in my own personal growth and development. I want to ask you both now, why did, it, why did the government take this position on something that you, a psychiatric nurse, Annie, you, a psychiatrist, Michael, myself, a doctor of clinical psychology, many others that we know, that we know as colleagues all around the country um, had um, been uh, given this uh, medicine while it was legal. We all knew about the profoundly positive effects that it had upon us. Why did the government take this position, in your opinions? Well, you know, I don't feel I know the answer to that very thoroughly, but it must have been political reasoning rather than scientific. And, you know, there was concern that, uh, that the use had spread to um, selling it in bars and recreational use. And the government was, I'm sure, reacting in part to that. Um, but it was striking in the hearings. You know, there were very reputable uh, medical people testifying about its potential use and its its safe use in medical hands. Charlie Grobe, psychiatrist from UCLA, being one of those who's going to be on your show, I think. Yes, yeah, Charlie. So there was a lot of, you know, there, there was no question in the hearings that there was a lot of reason to think that it should be further researched. But so I can only conclude that it was a political decision and, you know, based on I think there's a lot of fear in the kind of drug drug war mentality that some people are afraid of you know, sending the wrong message that if you um, allow for the fact that some things may be dangerous when used unwisely but may also be very useful, healing, and even life-saving when used by health professionals, um, that's a more complicated message than all drugs are bad. 
would you be willing to go a little further in, in, in your just in your speculation as to what you what you mean by a, a political decision? I mean, here we have something that, um, as far as I know, I, I think you two are, are much more uh, conversant with the, with the literature. As far as I know, there have been very few, if any, incidences of, uh, of admissions to emergency rooms around the country, particularly when this is used as a medicine. Uh, was the risk, you know, theological? Was it, um, I mean, where do you think they were coming from in, in this suppression of particularly of the research. Well, is, you know, um, it's really a head-scratcher. I mean, I, it, I, it is a head-scratcher. You know, I, I think, as you know, there was a lot of promising psychedelic research going on in the 50s and 60s and early 70s. And, but then, you know, really Richard Nixon took a strong position about, you know, the drug war and um, the government really turned away from... Uh, funding or even allowing most research with these compounds. So it was, it was very irrational from a medical point of view. Well, wait, tell the, our listening audience, please, as a psychiatrist, Michael, what do you mean when you refer to a medicine as psychedelic? What, what, what are you meaning to convey to the listener? Uh, well, I wish we had a better term that was agreed upon. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, psychedelic uh, means mind-altering, and for many people it implies uh, hallucinations and maybe very strong transpersonal, um, spiritual kinds of experiences, uh, the kind that you see with LSD or psilocybin. But not with MDMA. MDMA is different, and some people have suggested other terms like intactogen, something that helps you touch within or in pathogen, something that increases empathy. So, um, or in theogen. Or in theogen, right. It gives sort of a, of, of a mystical, almost religious experience. Yeah. But, it's yeah. Never, but no one has ever pointed a finger at this particular medicine, MDMA, and accused it of being a hallucinogen. Or a, uh, no. Or a, psycho, a, a, a schizophrenomimetic or anything like that. No, I mean, I think the terms are often used loosely, but I think you're right. It's, it's quite different, and in many ways, I, I think many of these compounds have great potential and need to be studied and are some being studied, but I think MDMA in some ways is easier to work with in clinically in that it doesn't cause hallucinations or um, as much distortion of, or maybe distortion is the wrong word, as much of a shift of consciousness in, in the ways that some of these others do. Does MDMA work on the neurotransmitters in the brain in a similar way that medicines which the government has allowed research on and has allowed to be sold to the public work, such as the, what's called the SSRIs, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, such as Prozac and uh, Luvox and uh, Zoloft and Paxil and so on, does this MDMA work in a similar way to these other uh, medicines? Well, part of the effect is similar. It does cause changes in the serotonin system and, and increased serotonin, blocking reuptake of serotonin. And some, you know, that part of it is, is similar to the SSRIs. But then there are all these other effects, and no one really understands how these all combine to cause this kind of 
shift in consciousness. So we're on the cutting edge, in other words. We're learning about the way these different medicines interact with the neurotransmitters, with brain function. Absolutely, yeah, there's a lot to be learned. So again, I scratch my head and I, and I ask the question, how is it that some of these medicines are not only researched, but sold to the public, and then some of them, such as uh, MDMA, are selected out and they're made, not only are they made illegal for consumption, but research at the university level is also made illegal. Fascinating thing to do. It's fascinating. I scratch my head, too. Uh, although, you know, the research hasn't actually been made illegal. It's just that it was more of a de facto thing. In fact, um, people couldn't get studies approved or funded for many years. Um, 50, years to, 50 years to be right. I, 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 I said corrected. You're right. It's not that the research was made illegal. It's just that the research was suppressed. Right. And, you know, I not only scratch my head, it's, it's very troubling. One of the reasons we felt strongly we needed to do this is, you know, we're, um, I'm a physician, Annie's a nurse. People come to us with real problems, suffering a lot, looking for the best treatment possible. And it just isn't tenable to say there a group of potential medicines that might be very helpful for these people who aren't responding to the existing therapies, but we're not allowed to even look there. That's just not a tenable position for a, a physician or a psychologist or a nurse to be in, I don't think. We need to, we need to look for anything that sounds like it might be promising, but without prejudice, you know, with, according to scientific uh, data, not... Um, political decisions. Yes. In fact, not only are, are we not able to offer people these medicines, we're not even able to tell people who, who financially could do so where in the world they might go to obtain them. Whereas in other areas, you can send people to another country if they want to be on the cutting edge. If another country is ahead of us and doing something that we're not doing, you can go there. But in this particular case, we can't even do that because, as you know, and I'm going to explain now, the United States government suppresses the research in other areas of the world. I had the good fortune to be with uh, Michael Mithoffer some years ago as part of a small expedition uh, that, of scientists that went to Israel to, to talk with them, uh, with their uh, scientists, about the use of this MDMA with people suffering PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, particularly during the Infantata when, when, when there were you know, body parts and so on flying around and people were severely traumatized. And I, I'm sure you'll bear this out, Michael, that we were told that although the Israelis were interested in doing this research, they really couldn't until the United States gave them the go-ahead because they could lose funding. Isn't that correct? Do you uh, recall that? I do recall that. I, I don't recall that they said the exact reason, but they did make it clear that they wouldn't consider it until we had a full approval for our research here. Yeah. Extraordinary uh, uh, suppression, as you said, not illegal, but just uh, not uh, not only not granting, but suppressing. Well, let's get to your study now. Tell us uh, some background about how, how it came about, how you managed to get the FDA approval, and then take us into the study, please. Okay, yeah, the good news is, despite all you're saying and the importance of 
of that. The good news is we have been allowed to do research now, and it is picking up. So, um, as you say, we submitted our FDA application in uh, the fall of 91, October, and then we got permission from the FDA, actually, within 30 days. It then took another two and a half years to get permissions from an institutional review board uh, and the DEA. But then we were able to do that for our first our first study, which is the first clinical study of MDMA to have been completed. There were some other studies before called um, phase one trials, giving MDMA to normal volunteers. Charlie Grobe at UCLA did the first of those, and there were uh, two others in the U.S. and some in Europe. So there had been there was some data about giving it to humans, but not for treatment. Um, and there had been one study started in Spain that was shut down. So ours was the first that was actually able to study MDMA as a treatment and be completed. So we, we started in 2004, and it's one of the, I think, important things about this model is we're not just doing a drug study. We're studying MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, as you said in the beginning. So people, and people don't get MDMA to take home. Um, they get MDMA two or three times a month apart in an all-day session with me and Annie as co-therapists. Allow me to interrupt and underline something you just said, which is of importance to our listeners. One is that this is not a medicine, at least during this study, that the uh, people who participated in uh, took at home. This is a medicine that they took in the office with uh, Dr. Mithoffer and his wife, Annie, a psychiatric nurse. So that's important. And then also to note that the medicine was taken in conjunction with verbal psychotherapy. This was not, in this study, this was not a medicine that you swallowed and then you looked for the results. Right, exactly. And that's really an important part of the way we see it. Um, And also that there was careful, well, there was careful screening to make sure people didn't have some underlying health problem that might make MDMA dangerous because it does increase blood pressure and pulse. And we monitored those things very carefully. So it was a very controlled setting. Let me just underline again something you said, Michael. Increase blood pressure and pulse. That's important to know because we do know, and, and, and we must say out loud, that a drug version of MDMA, the medicine, is used on the street. We all know that. It's referred to as ecstasy. Uh, what you get on the street may be MDMA. It may be something else because there's no consumer protection with street medicine or street drugs. It is important to know, those of you who are listening, and, uh, and just you know, quite openly say that we know that there are what, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people experimenting with this. We're neither condoning it or, or supporting street experimentation, but there's a warning here about increase in blood pressure and increase in pulse rate. Yeah, I'm glad you made that point because we don't want people to take the message that because we've used it safely in this setting that there are no risks to it because there are risks. You know, Everything is a risk-benefit ratio, really. Right. And, and one of the risks you're pointing out here is this increase in blood pressure and, and pulse rate. 
and, and we know that sometimes when people use it in dance or get overheated, that's one of the one of the problem areas, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's come back to your study and not get, allow me to sidetrack you here. So this first the first study um, was it, there were twenty participants, all of whom had treatment resistant post traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. Um, and they had to have had prior treatment with both medications, um, things like Zoloft and Paxil. Those are the two that are approved by FDA for PTSD. Those are serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs. They had to have had at least a course of treatment with that, but most of them had had many different medicines. And they had to have had at least six months of psychotherapy, uh, and most had had more, many far more than that. And still be still have significant PTSD symptoms. So this is uh, what you uh, how you define treatment resistant, meaning they had these various other forms of treatment, and they did not get a significant enough improvement to feel healed or, or a sense of well being. Right, and that was evaluated. You know, their level of symptoms. Um, that those tests were done by a psychologist not involved in the treatment part of the. Therapy. So an independent rater rated whether they still had significant PTSD before and also then later rated the levels of their symptoms afterwards. Um, so if people qualified for the study, then we would do several introductory sessions to get to know them and to prepare them for the experience. That was very important. And then after their all-day experience with us, um, they would spend the night in the clinic with a nurse on duty and we would meet with them the next morning for a 90-minute session, and then we would talk to them every day on the phone for a week, and we would meet with them approximately every week for a month in between the sessions to help them integrate the experience. Let's just review that. You spoke to these folks after they had their first MDMA experience and had their 90-minute session in the office. You then spoke to them every single day on the telephone. Right, for a week. Mm-hmm. Now, and every, every one of the participants followed the exact same protocol? Right. Is this the treatment protocol that our friend and colleague, Dr. June Roos, worked on or, or, or wrote? Or is this yes. a different one? Yes. This mm-hmm. was the same protocol that, that June Roos was uh, helping us uh, produce the manual yeah. to describe the treatment. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Same one. Okay. And it was double blind. You know, people got either... MDMA uh, on two occasions a month apart or inactive placebo on those two occasions with all the same therapy, the same all-day sessions and the same follow-up treatment. So neither the participants nor Annie and I nor the uh, testing psychologist knew who was going to get what. And then later, if it turned out when we broke the blind after we measured their symptoms two months later... If they had gotten placebo, then they could go through the whole thing again with MDMA in an open-label fashion so everybody knew what they were getting, so that we can compare how they did with the placebo with how they did when MDMA was added. Did you use neutral placebos, or did you use active placebos? We used an inactive placebo in this first study. Okay. The reason I brought that up is because... You know, uh, Whitaker and uh, Robert Whitaker and, uh, and Irving Kirsch, who are going to be on this program in uh, December, have uh, made some breakthrough studies comparing placebos to the SSRIs. And one of the things they found is that there was a significant difference in results 
when they used either active or inactive placebos. When they used active placebos, the placebos did much better than the SSRIs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We are now, in our current study with uh, veterans that we're doing now, we are using active placebo. You know, I, I think maybe I better just take a moment here and explain what I meant uh, by that um, to our listeners. Uh, what Michael is talking about in a double-blind study, that means that the person who's administering either the medicine or the placebo does not know who's getting what, because it was found earlier that when the person who actually hands the medicine to the, uh, to the patient or to the subject in the study knows what they're handing, it actually has an effect. That's the mind is so powerful. So in this, what's called double blind, the person who's doing the administration has no idea who's getting the placebo and who's getting the medicine. What Whitaker and Kirsch and others have now discovered is that, all, that when you give a neutral placebo, a sugar pill, something that has no effect, and you give a medicine to the other people, the people who get the placebo, they know they're getting the placebo because they feel that nothing happens. And the people who get the medicine, they know they're getting a medicine within a certain number of minutes because they can feel something happen. Therefore, the study itself is affected by our minds knowing, oh, I'm one of those who's getting the placebo, or oh, I'm one of those getting the medicine. And that affects the study itself. So what these scientists did is they've created placebos that give you a certain a feeling of some kind. Not a feeling that, ch- that, that alters your mind in any way, not a feeling that attacks bacteria. It's just, it's a feeling. So therefore, the subjects can't tell which of them are on the medicine and which are on the placebo because everybody's getting some subjective change in their feeling state. So with that, Michael, let's go back to the study. I, I thought it was important to let everybody... That, yeah, that's an important point, and that we're addressing that in this current study, but we felt for other reasons it was important to use an inactive placebo for the first study so we could really document the ch- differences in side effects. Yes. Another whole issue, uh, of course, uh, yeah. which is what we call side effects. Of course, they really don't affect the side. They affect the entire organism. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Good point. Yes. So I don't know how we got uh, that nomenclature of a side effect. Uh, anyway, back to your study, please. So then people would have their uh, two or three sessions. It actually changed as we went along. We were allowed to add the third session. And then two months after their last MDMA or placebo-assisted session, then they would have the symptom measures done again by the psychologist to see what their level of PTSD symptoms was. And then we would break the blind, and if it turned out they had gotten placebo, then, as I said, they could go through the same thing again and then measure the, um, but with active, with MDMA, and then measure the results two months after that. And that's how we compared, you know, the placebo group, the MDMA group first, and then we also could compare the placebo group with placebo to themselves with MDMA. And what did you discover? And we had very, very strong, encouraging results. Um, we had a significant effect with placebo. Uh, placebo itself had a positive effect. Right. With, you know, placebo with all these all-day therapy sessions. Yes. And all the follow-up therapy. So actually, In other people, words, the placebo people got, an hour, got the, the daily phone call? Right. Everything the same. They got everything the same. Okay. 
so two of the eight people who got randomized to placebo had a very strong placebo response from just that. Uh, one of those was fairly short live, but we did have two strong placebo responders, and the rest did not change or didn't change much, or some, some got slightly worse, or some got a little better with placebo. But overall, we, you know, the placebo did make a difference. But the MDMA group had a much stronger uh, response. So basically, in the MDMA group, 83% had a very strong clinical response. And in the placebo group, that was 25%. Then when the placebo group crossed over and had MDMA, they all had a significant response to MDMA, uh, including the ones that had had no response to placebo. Annie, did any of the people have a negative response? No. um, I think, you know, part of this work is that sometimes things can look worse, at first, as you're digging deeper into the trauma and you're re-experiencing what it um, feels like to have emotions again, and, you know, that can sometimes have a transient, um, maybe looking worse, but uh, that would be the only thing that I could say that may have been negative uh, in you know that way, and but when, that and is part of some part of what you do when you talk to people about what the therapy is going to be like and what we have seen before and what to be looking for. We guide people about that, and that's why we have so many integration sessions and the phone calls every day because you're helping people move through that the trauma. And, and the emotions. And in terms of your measurements, did any of the people score as if they were worse off after the medicine than they were before? No. Not in the PTSD measurements. Not in the PTSD what I'm, measurements What I'm talking about more is, is maybe an increase in the anxiety uh, mm-hmm. a few days after as they're going back home and they're thinking about what they had talked about and Maybe they shouldn't have talked about those things, and they're really trying to deal with feelings again. So it, it's more of that kind of thing I'm talking about. Yeah, so the middle road before they get to the place of being healed. Right. That's why the integration sessions we think are so important, mm-hmm. to help people move through that period if, they, if that happens. You know, I just realized we've been using PTSD uh, quite a bit in this program because the three of us know what it is, and, and many of our listeners do as well. But I think it would be a good idea if if, uh, if you two would talk a little bit about uh, about PTSD and, and what it is. Yeah, but, um, PTSD is a kind of a syndrome that happens following some severe trauma. In the, in this first study, it was mostly childhood sexual abuse or rape as an adult. In the current study now, it's it's veterans with either war trauma or military sexual assault. So there's some trauma, and then um, some people have some symptoms for a short time and then move on, Um, but a certain percentage of people end up with this 
thing we call PTSD, which is basically there, there are three symptom clusters, and people with PTSD have some from each. One is re-experiencing. They either have intrusive memories or flashbacks or nightmares about the trauma, another or physiological response in, ter- in response to cues. Another is that they have um, hyperarousal, anxiety, startle response, sleep disturbance, things like that. And the other is avoidance. They either avoid places or people that remind them of the trauma, or it can be an inner avoidance, this kind of emotional numbing. They stay away from emotions um, because they're upsetting. So it's it's always a combination of those things that we define as as PTSD, and it can be very debilitating. Um, people, some of the people in the study were really hardly got out of their house, really could could not function well at all, interfered with their relationships and their physical health. There's very good evidence. You know, speaking of the mind-body connection, there's a lot of there are a lot of studies showing how much more medical utilization and medical morbidity there is in people with PTSD compared to those without it. Do these folks stay in their homes, the ones who do stay in their homes, uh, for safety purposes? Because when they go out, they're liable to encounter some something that triggers or reminds them of the traumatic event? Yes. Yeah, it can be that, or that's basically it, or sometimes they just feel unsafe in general. But often it's, it's just what you're saying, avoidance of triggers that remind them or that trigger their anxiety. Or immobilized by fear and and not wanting to be with people, not wanting to be social. Fear is, is a, a great part of mm-hmm. what they get left with after the traumatic event. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you've now gone through the first study you're working on the second one and looking back on the first study and what you've learned and what what can you you share with the listeners regarding the efficacy and just plain language the efficacy of this medicine well you know as a scientist as scientists we need to be sure we keep in mind that this is a small study uh a small number of people, even though we got very statistically significant results, this is only a beginning, so we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. We need to see if this can be replicated and and do larger studies. Having said that, the effect we've seen so far was very striking and um, very encouraging. You know, we've seen people, people have told us they, it changed their relationship to their emotions was a common thing that people said. It changed that, their relationship to their emotions. Yeah. Say some more about that. Annie, can you speak to that topic, change their relationship to their emotions? Well, I, I think the, the common thing is, is they are so afraid to revisit a traumatic event or the emotions that are around it that they completely shut everything out. You know, they're not going to feel anything, and uh, they won't go there. They just won't go there. And so what sometimes happens in the MDMA session is they have an experience of some emotion coming, and with your help, they can sit with it, 
and they can realize, okay, I was able to, to be without emotion. It wasn't actually as bad as I thought it was going to be. And then after the session, part of the integration can be going back to that feeling that they were okay, that they actually could do it. And then it's a, you know, gradually people have to work at it, but that's part of what happens. I think another thing that that happens for people is it can be a template of feeling really good and relaxed like they have never felt in their whole life. And just having that template and helping people anchor that within themselves, they can come out the next week and they can re-experience it themselves, go back to that feeling, and gradually it's a map for them. Does that make sense? It makes sense. It, 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 uh, if I understand you, you're saying that the traumatic experience, the original traumatic experience, was so powerful in one area of emotion that as a, a, a protective device against the pain of that experience, all emotions were, are blanketed out. Is that what you're saying? That the that, that the right. person there there in other words they're, they're, they become either consciously or unconsciously, if you will, af- af- afraid of emotions in general because any one of them is liable to open up the Pandora's box of the one that was so traumatic. Exactly. And so they're walking around in a state of constantly having to suppress or automatically uh, suppress one of the most vital aspects of the human condition, which is our emotional state. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then the medicine, this MDMA, allows the subjective feeling and or expression uh, with your guidance and help in therapy of an emotion, which then opens the door for a peak, for an experience. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. People, for instance, people would use images in in the MDMA sessions. One was as if the trauma was down in this dark place, the memory and the feelings, and they the MDMA gave them a ladder so they could go down the ladder into the feelings. It was painful, um, but they could go there, feel it, express it, and then when they needed to, they could just go up a few rungs and take a break and then go back down. It, they had a sense that, okay, I can do this, and I can control it. And there were many images like that, people saying they, they could sort of see the trauma going by in spheres so that they could process the feelings without having it overtake them, that, that kind of thing. And I think what Michael just said, that the worry that you're going to be taken over by it, that it's the anger is going to consume you or or you're going to act on it in some terrible rageful way is sometimes part of it that they're they're so afraid of that and so if you can experience it in little amounts and work with it and work with it in the body maybe and uh, you know experiencing it in the session then it's not as scary later you know, I was just about to ask the listening audience for calls, and we have a caller, so I'm going to take a call right now, Michael and Annie. Uh, Michael, go ahead. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. 
Uh, good morning. Good morning. Do you uh, consider alcohol a drug? Okay, let's ask our, our, uh, our guests. Michael and Annie, do you consider alcohol a drug? Do you consider alcohol a medicine? I'll add to the listener's question. I would say it, it, it could be it's both, you know, depending on how it's used. Okay, there's your answer. As with so many of the things that we take, depends on the set and the setting. It takes. It depends on the situation. It depends on who's administering it. It depends on volume. It depends on the dose. There are a lot of things that ta- that the same substance can be on the one hand a drug or on the other hand a medicine. We've got another caller here. Let's take it. How? Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Good morning. Good As morning. Usual, another very interesting program. I would like your guests and yourself, for that matter, to try if you can to give people some sense of what it's actually like to experience this chemical as it begins to affect you. For example, uh, we know that uh, this is very subjective and generalized, but we know that uh, if people are smoking marijuana, it can be a focusing agent, for example. Uh, We know that if you take LSD, that at some point when it really grabs you, it's going to take you down, and you feel like you're dissolving. And it's okay or it's not okay, depending on set and setting and your headspace. So if you can talk about this, so far, I haven't heard anything that seems to describe what it's like to experience this drug. So if you can, please try to do that, and I thank you for the program. Wonderful question. That is a really good question. You know, um, maybe I'll just say a little bit can say something. Yes. Um, For some people, when the drug comes on, it can uh, make them more anxious. And a bit of time where we talk people through that, we have them use their breath, and uh, that we think is, is usually when the medicine is coming on, and then gradually the positive effects of the medicine will come in and they won't be as fearful and they won't be thinking about that anxiety. And I think the beginning of when it comes on, it very often for people does focus uh, them and brings them into the present moment in a way that they've never experienced before. And it often brings things up of um, their childhood and positive things that are in their lives um, oh, I survived my trauma, and I have a, a family that loves me. Um, and then it, it will open up, and it's different from each person. But sometimes people have very strong stories and pictures that go with their experience where uh, they have an animal that comes in and talks to them throughout it, or they have, like Michael said, um, images of, like, going down a ladder or looking in jars that might hold the trauma. Um, Michael, do you want to go on and say something? Um, well, that's, I, I agree with you. It, you know, in part, sometimes there's a lot of comfortable feeling in the body. It can be quite um, very affirming and comfortable. People with PTSD often haven't felt comfortable in their body uh, for a long time or happy. One person told us he after having been abused as a child, he never had felt happiness. He only kind of um, 
deduce what it must be from watching other people's behavior, and he felt that for the first time with MDMA and knew it was actually a possibility for him. So there's that very comfortable, positive part of it, but often it was very difficult, and a few people said, I don't know why they call this ecstasy, Mm -hmm. because they spent a lot of the time revisiting trauma and having a lot of painful feelings. It was still very difficult, you know, that's maybe part of what's effective about it is that people can revisit the trauma and not be emotionally cut off. They still have the pain, they still have to move through the feelings, but it kind of gives them a sense that they can do it. So it seemed to be a combination of those affirming, positive, comfortable uh, experiences and the more painful ones, but that they were able to process in a more helpful way than they had been before. Mm-hmm. I'll go back uh, some uh, 28 years to the experience in, in, my, uh, in my therapist's office and, uh, and recall that the experience I had as this medicine saturated my system was a feeling of what I thought was connecting with what our founders called divine providence, that I was being lifted into some divine space, and it was ecstatic. I remember clearly a visual image I had uh, sitting there uh, with Dr. Cantor, and I, I had a visual image of a shield in front of my heart that was melting. And as the shield melted away, my, my heart spoke, and I heard it speak in a different way than I'd ever heard before. And it was a soft voice, and it was a voice of my inner truth, and it felt very undefended, as if I was allowing my inner spirit to speak. And it was a very powerful experience, and of course I wanted to come back to his office and and do it again, which I was fortunate enough to be able to do. Um, So I hope that uh, Mm -hmm. answers our listener. And uh, I think maybe we have time for one more call here, so I'll I'll take it. Uh, Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hi, still here. The other half of my question was, uh, how is MDMA used in treating alcoholism? Oh, okay, great question. Thank you. Uh, Do we have any uh, information on that, uh, Andy and Michael? Uh, There are no studies going on now, and I don't think there have been, but I think it would be a very good thing to study it would by the you way know, we had we had we had one person that stopped smoking we had a couple people that didn't drink caffeine anymore after um, our study we had three people go back to work that had not been able to work so it you know we we found a lot of things that it could help yes we, we, we have another caller here thank you annie uh, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. I know I only have a second or two, but can you discuss at all the difference between some people who uh, cave in under the trauma and other ones just it passes over them? Have you been able to determine what the determining factor is? Thank you. Let's see if uh, our guests can answer that. Thanks. That's a really interesting question. There, there's quite a lot of research. And many people have been asking that question. Nobody really knows the answer. There is some association to early childhood trauma and later developing PTSD from a, an adult trauma. And there uh, is some work now suggesting some genetic factors. Um, and I'm sure there, it has a lot to do with 
kind of support and other things like that. But we really don't know the answer to that. Not yet. Do we have time for one more question? Let's see if we can get one more in here. You'll have to talk rapidly. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Yes, thank you so much for the program. I wanted to, to relay to you and to the listening audience uh, with MDA, in, with whatever it's called. Um, I came into a, a realm of pure love. The, the few people that I was around, I felt safe with, and I just was... I saw the beauty in them. I felt the angels were all, all there. I, I, I just came into a realm of, of pure love. It was really a heart kind of chakra medicine for me. Thank you. And that, I think, is what you heard uh, Michael and Annie discuss earlier in the program uh, as, a, as an entheogenistic uh, or an empathogen experience. Is that, isn't that right, mm-hmm. Michael? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. So... We're coming to the end of our program. I want to thank you, Michael. I want to thank you, Annie. Annie and Michael Mithoffer, who are the principal investigators in the historic MDMA study, which took place in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, and which is ongoing because they're into their next study. And you'll be hearing more, and we'll have them back on the program in the future to get a report on that study on this important medicine. Thanks very much, Richard. We really enjoyed it. Um, Thank you, Richard. Uh, it's wonderful being with you, too, and I look forward uh, to seeing you both in December at the uh, 25th Anniversary Conference of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which is taking place uh, in Oakland, California, in the first week of December. Yeah, great. Yes. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you both very much. And thank you all for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our KZYX staff and our in-studio engineer, my dear friend, Mike DeLora. Please join me again in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock Pacific Daylight Saving Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.